Back empowers you to get it together with a single digital wallet. Use Back to aggregate, convert, send, and spend digital assets like crypto, loyalty, and rewards points, and gift cards. Go to backedbakt.com to sign up for the early access program today and start treating your digital assets just like cash. And I also want to give a shout out to Kraken. With Kraken, the cryptocurrency exchange, you can instantly buy and sell over 50 of the most popular cryptocurrencies or even earn additional rewards through their industry-leading staking service. Payouts are twice a week and you can earn up to 20% each year. Visit Kraken.com now to learn more. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for tuning in to what is a very special episode of The Scoop. I'm your host, Frank Chaparro, Director of News at The Block, and we are continuing our saga or our journey into the world of NFTs, digital collectibles, digital art. And we have a guest on the show who is unique for our audience. We, we typically have a lot of the folks from the trading world, the market structure world, a lot of people who maybe aren't super into progressive house and electro, but we're keeping it funk and fresh here. Oh my God. <laughs> on the scoop. We have Justin David Blau. Oh boy. He is, you know, we actually met, I think it was three or four years ago when you had first kind of found yourself at the intersection of music and crypto. I think your original interest was in how to improve the ticket functionality, sort of getting folks to attend these live events in a way that could add value or more value for the folks that were participating on the artist side and to get fans more involved. And, and the reason why I bring it up is because it actually has helped me, despite how far we've come from that, kind of think about the value in NFTs as it pertains to music. But without getting too much into the specifics. I want to thank you for coming on. Let's first break down uh, who you are, Justin, your crypto journey and, and where you see the value in sort of NFTs. And then we can talk about all the fun stuff about your, you know, first ever tokenized album sale, which, you know, you, you kind of made, I think, $3.6 million. But let's let's talk about the longer journey and then we can we can dig in there. Definitely more. You're, 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 you're undercutting them there. So it was 11 points. <laughs> I didn't want him to have to correct you, but that's why I'm here. This is why Ryan's here. Cause so, you know, th it wasn't just three, 11 million. Okay. So we're already, <laughs> we're already off to a hot start. <laughs> so, yeah, I think i um, happy to share like a quick background of my, my journey through distributed ledger tech. I had a lot of college friends. I went to school at Washington university in St. Louis. I studied economics, derivatives, finance, and a lot of my friends ended up going to work for banks. Some of them ended up in tech. One of my friends was in the first like 10 or 20 employees at Square. The other one went on to start a company called Open Door with Keith Raboy. And his name is JD. And so I've always kind of had ties to the financial world and the tech world. In 2014, I met the Winklevoss twins on spring break in Mexico, literally like opening up for Avicii, rest in peace. Avicii. And I was playing a club and just befriended them. They, you know, invited me to hang out in LA. 
that's when I heard about Bitcoin for the first time. So I'm not like an early Bitcoiner by any means. I'm a 2014-ish Bitcoiner and just got excited about the technology, the potential for, you know, permissionless value transfer across the world 24-7 was super interesting to me. Having a background in finance, banks are pretty inefficient at a lot of stuff. And so having a technological bank was really interesting. Um, that was, you know, kind of intrinsic and, you know, or, or at least influenced only by itself and couldn't be, you know, uh, warped by external forces outside of quantum computing. So that was like really, really, really interesting to me at the time. And I, I really didn't get active until 2017 when I started to see the potential of, you know, decentralized applications reforming the music business because the music business is notorious for having tons of middlemen, right? And I, I started to see the potential with dApps on Ethereum and really wanted to explore this idea of giving fans the ability to curate their own live experience. So fans would effectively pool money, pick the lineup, and then share in the profits of a music festival. Of course, we didn't know that a token that represented that kind of infrastructure would probably be a security when we came up with this idea because security tokens weren't even a thing at the time in 17. Like no one was even talking about that. But I'm thankful to have great lawyers. We didn't do an ICO. We did, you know, equity round. And, you know, we ended up throwing a festival that had no, you know, non a non-transferable Stellar Lumens token that just did some really cool reward shit. And that's all we did um, because yeah. we were restricted by the regulatory environment. But I was really careful at the time to do things the right way. There were also a lot of to, just to be honest, like haters that were like, who is this DJ that's trying to do crypto stuff? At the time, there were a lot of people that were like, why does this guy think he knows what's going on here? He's just a DJ. Um, and that was kind of what I was met with, you know, time and time again with people who I, I was pitching this concept to. And, you know, I just was lucky to meet, you know, the festival was a great success. We did throw a festival. It did. We did have a Stellar Lumens token component that I worked with. Uh, I worked on with the Interstellar team on that in 18 and it was successful. Like we had an 8,000 person sold out festival. We had like 3,000 stellar transactions at the festival. More than 30% of the attendees downloaded the app and used the wallet. And it was actually really cool. Um, we just like couldn't do anything with it after because there was too much regulatory risk. Fast forward to, you know, July of last year, I had been kind of waiting for a new moment for distributed ledger tech to kind of shine. And as the dollar, you know, rapidly, as people's fears about dollar debasement, you know, worsened, it was obvious that there was this huge migration to the distributed ledger tech world and cryptocurrencies once again, um, as an alternative form of value storage and, you know, payments and transfer, right? Like all the, all the things that crypto functions to service. So in July, I discovered an artist named Trevor Jones, who had released this digital rendition of the of the Picasso bowl on Nifty Gateway and had sold it for $55,000. And I said, Oh, my God, how does this apply to music? I have to think about this. And so I reached out to my art director, Slime Sunday, who I've been working with for five years. And I said, dude, let's be the first people to make audiovisual art on the blockchain. He was like, let's do it. Um, this is at a time when my main revenue source, touring, was completely halted. Um, I've obviously yeah. you know, had long-term holdings in different cryptocurrencies, mainly Bitcoin ETH. You know, I'm pretty maximalist in that regard. But I was always like, excited to explore other potentials and you know, think about what could work and what people would really want in a decentralized format. And so we started doing this in you know July, August. We released our first NFTs in September, and we made twenty one thousand dollars. And for me, you know, compared to a live performance fee, it was it was good. It wasn't you know anywhere near what I would make for a performance, but it was something I was quite excited about because I would you know it would it gave me a means to monetize content that I otherwise wouldn't release on Spotify because of the algorithm, right? The algorithm kind of forces me into making creative decisions about you know music that aren't always like what I want, but I'm kind of forced into that position. So. NFTs kind of gave me the ability to share my art in a different way with my art director creating the visuals. So it was kind of like you'd get a little piece of a live show 
when you bought our NFTs back in September. But we constantly wanted to push the boundary of you know animation and, and music, and things just grew organically. You know, we more collectors who were already collecting in the space got excited about our works, and then you know we just wanted to continue innovating. So in January, I did the first tokenized song, so to speak. It was just a collectible layer of a music file that we'd only ever mint once, and. You know, my long-term vision for NFTs and music is actually giving fans rev share in the master recording rights, but like that's a security. That's kind of where like me in my um, boomer spirit kind of get lost, right? Where I, when I think about what this whole world is, and I think part of the reason why people get confused is because it does span music, art, and so many different things, collectibles. Let's focus in on the music for a second. So when we say, and this is where you're trying to innovate, when we say we're tokenizing an album or tokenizing a component of music or audio, what does that mean? Is it simply just like the audio is stored on a decentralized database versus some sort of computer? So there's two layers to what I believe a tokenized song looks like. The first layer is just a collectible edition, the same way you have a lithograph in real life for, for real art. So it's an edition of a digital file that is signed by me that represents, you know, a collectible layer of ownership in the music. But could you go listen to that on Spotify? Yeah, it's the same file. It's just an official edition, the same way there, there are official editions of so many things in the physical world that are very easy to replicate. Um, mm. my, my favorite example of this is the Honus Wagner baseball card that you could recreate for like 50 cents, but it costs $4 million for the real one, right? So when you ascribe value to something that's official, people who are buying the collectible edition of a song are buying a feeling. They're buying an emotion of supporting me in my maybe tech and music endeavors. And that's kind of what happened with the album, um, which we had no expectation of doing any of this revenue at all. You know, zero expectation. We were just doing it to try to innovate and be cool and push the boundary. But what, what I think happened is all the collectors, you know, at least a third of the collectors that bid on it are people that maybe I've interacted before, who I've spoken to about my art before. And they just kind of all believe in my vision, which is giving artists power to monetize without a centralized party, i.e. record label, particularly a rights holder. Um, there are lots of services in music that are still essential, like management and agencies. Like That stuff is actually really important. Having other people on your team as an artist enables you to be more creative. Mm. The biggest part of the music business to disrupt is the major record deal labels that, that sign artists for like 80% of their entire career. Like That's wrong. That's the stuff that we need to you know, disrupt. Managers so let's, and stuff say like, like, let's say there was like a manager in this situation of the album you you tokenized and released, they would have gotten 80% of that 11 million. So in, so my management takes, you know, full disclosure, typically takes 15%. But in this case, you know, they obviously reduced that fee for helping me launch this. And, and I'm very thankful. And that will probably be the fee going forward, a reduced fee. But management is super essential in like an artist's career. A record mm -hmm. label that takes 80% is maybe not. And so this oh, idea... This idea that fans can monetize art for an artist is certainly interesting, but we started with this collectible layer, which is really interesting in and of itself. But where this goes in the future is fans actually owning rev share and master recording rights, a percentage of the rights in the song, which is something that like is definitely a security, right? But there's a lot of reasons why those types of tokens should live on a blockchain. And we can get into that later, like the interoperability, the liquidity, the ability to trade it permissionlessly. Right. Like there's a lot of reasons why security tokens on a, on a blockchain, while they have a central point of failure in their connection with the real world data of how much you know revenue a song is producing, there's still a lot of use cases for why it should exist on the blockchain for, for liquidity purposes and 
you know, how this stuff engages with the entire like new world of DeFi, like you could easily collateralize your ownership in music. There's no reason why you couldn't, especially because there are real cash flows associated with owning music. So my vision in the future is definitely to give people access to IP rights. But we couldn't do that today. So like, I've, I've talked about that a lot. And I do see like that probably happening in the next three to six months. And I'm like very active on that front, like pushing that. Is that why folks sort of were so excited about this is because they, they see the potential for those rights and such? If I could explain it, it, it's the same way that people believe in people. And they, pay, you know, today he broke every record and generated 70 million from his art. They believe in him carrying this whole community into the future the same way people believe in Elon, but you know, Elon might not run a profitable company. They believe in his vision. And we're in this like weird world where belief means more than dollars. And I'm not surprised because there's an infinite number of dollars that can be produced and that are being produced now. So this idea of value storage has been turned on its head in 2020 and 2021. And I think all these people just believe in me. If, if I could explain it, I think they just believe in my vision and believe in me hopefully carrying out that vision and disrupting the music business. I don't, I don't see any other reason why they would you know, participate here if they didn't believe that. And I think the same is true of Beeple and, and his ability to disrupt Instagram, which he's doing. So, you know, I, I think that's what's driving this, this momentum, people's excitement about a direct artist to fan connection. But also, the other aspect that's really valuable of, of digital collectibles in general, is that they could enable things beyond the art itself, like access. So all those 33 binners that won my auction, they all have my phone number now. I sent them a, a, a you know, well-written, well-thought email, not to give myself too much credit about like all the things that we have planned in the future, what we're excited to bring them in on, like all these opportunities that I want to share with them and collaborate with them, get their feedback on, because they gave me that moment to speak to the music industry and to make a statement. Like they're my family for life, all 33 of them. And so, you know, for me, it's very much about, you know, people aren't just paying for the collectible and the song. They're paying for access. They're paying for being able to participate in what they believe to be a restructuring of the music business, which I think we've all known is going to happen for a long time. But like you said, Frank, specific to music, music is one of the most inefficient markets of all. Artists only keep 12% of all the revenue that's generated, which is just not right. 12% goes to artists, 88% goes to everyone else. Like It sounds like a lot of the, the values being lost through these record labels explain what the tokenization of an album does that remedies or ameliorates the functionality of the record label? So the, a record label has two key functions. Um, capital, liquidity for an artist. Like if an artist wants to pursue their dream, a lot of the time they don't have the money to quit their day job. So a label will give them like monetary compensation to, to give it a shot, right? And that in many cases can be, it could be 50,000, it could be 100,000, it could be a million dollars for a new artist. Uh, the flip side of that is they take 80% of the upside. So not only do they, on the music that comes out, they recoup that advance. So let's say they give an artist a million dollars. They don't even pay the artist until the million dollars is, re is recouped. So it's like a forced loan. And then after that, they literally capture 80% of the upside from the artist. Now, why has the world, why did that even exist in the first place? Because artists are traditionally not financially savvy and they kind of want to just pursue their dream at any cost. They don't think about the money. They, they, they care a lot more about the art. And you have these middlemen that have capitalized on that on artists' emotions and there there may be lack of financial savviness to just build giant businesses like Universal Music. And like back in the day, artists did need the liquidity and they did need the distribution because it was before the internet and labels did control a lot of like really big marketing campaigns. They did a lot of they did create a lot of value for artists like back in the day. 
But as the internet grew, the only purpose of a label became like their connection to Spotify and like whatever digital distribution they could do, which we all know, like you could just go on TikTok and make yourself as an artist in 2021. So record labels have just become less relevant in general. There are some record labels that are indie that take maybe a lot less than what a major label will take. And those labels do facilitate building an artist brand. They provide a lot of services. Even still, like it's a big split. There are a lot of good people out there that won't run record labels. And I, that's why I don't want to like shit on all record labels. But the deal structure of 80-20 is probably over forever. Like no one's going to take that deal who's a new artist anymore ever again because they saw what happened. They can engage directly now with the people. Exactly. And, and just like anything else, there are going to be people that people are like, well, now everyone's going to make NFTs. Yeah. I mean, how much music is out there? How many people want to be athletes? How many people want to be social media influencers? Like everyone's like, oh, the NFT market's going to be flooded. Yes, but quality will rise as with any new market or new you know, product. And I think that, you know, Beeple is an example of that as someone who just makes amazing stuff. And will there be speculation in the short term? Yes. Will there be innovation in the long term? Yes. Am I cautiously optimistic about these prices? Yes. Um, but in the end, just like any new market, there's, there's a period of price discovery. And that's what we're going through right now. I think the difference between this and what happened in, with the ICO boom in 2017, is back then people were buying ideas that like, could barely be delivered upon. Now people are buying something that gives them emotion, whether we agree yeah. with it or not. Like there's some stuff yeah. that sells that I don't really care for, but there is also stuff that I collect that I actually enjoy. Like I'm proud to own a Beeple and I won't sell it. I, I yeah. love that I own a Beeple. I get something out of that. I've been kind of going down this rabbit hole myself and you're the expert here, but just from someone who experienced the ICO boom, you know, when folks reach out to me to get, my impression of this new nascent space, I kind of, I do think about it in terms of what the ICO boom was like given the price activity, but there is this difference in what it's targeting, right? You know, every it, it made everyone want to be an investor, which is kind of not necessarily what everyone's good at or what everyone is passionate about, but everyone loves art and everyone loves music. And so you have something here that's innovating on what we are as as people, and we had um, I spoke with Dap uh, Dapper Labs early in the week, and then Gary V. And the one thread I think or theme that underpins a lot of this is the fact that human beings are inherently social, and if you can sort of have something that allows them to represent themselves to the world, then they're going to be attracted to that, and so. There are a lot of skeptics, and I welcome the skeptics who argue, what's the value in this? Well, it's, what's the value in, you know, very expensive clothing or an Hermes watch or the yeah. art that, you know, hangs on your wall? You don't know what an abstract painting is or looks like or why it's $2,500 for just, you know, stuff splashed against the wall, but it is. And, you know, I... I that You just nailed it, dude. Like, emotional value exists in real life everywhere. Fashion is one of the best examples. Like, how much do you think it costs Adidas to make a pair of Yeezys? <laughs> Five bucks for every marginal pair of Yeezys? What's yeah. the emotion? I don't want a fake pair. I want a real pair. Can I explain the difference in price that my emotion is, my emotions are like telling my brain that I have a higher willingness to pay for the real one than the fake one, even though they literally work and look almost exactly the same way? Um, I can't explain that. But that's existed in the real world 
forever, not only in the, not just in the art space, but like luxury automotives, there's obviously a fixed price of manufacturing, but like people buy the Ferrari brand because it's such a powerful brand, even though like other brands might go fast, like might have better performance, right? Like there's an infinite number of emotional purchases that happen on a day-to-day basis in the real world. And buying digital art is nothing different than that. And so, no, I don't want to, I want to interject, but I I don't want to lose an earlier thought that you had that's connected to this, which is, it's also not that different from this GameStop meme stock phenomenon that we're seeing. I want you to, I want to double click on that and sort of have you unpack your thinking there. Cause I, I find it very fascinating. People, this is all tied to COVID and, you know, COVID kind of rocked everyone's world because we never anticipated such a big shift in our social behavior in the past like century for the most part, minus the Spanish flu. So it just kind of accelerated this behavioral shift towards technological interaction that we have with each other. Clubhouse being a great example of this, like it connected us at a time that maybe we were less connected. And the same is true for like how we connect with each other over taste, right? Like we share tastes with friends in music and arts in clothing, like I might have differing tastes than some of my friends, but a lot of my friends do like the same music. Like we, we all share different tastes in things to, and, and, and like, you know, everything in the real world, that, that's what friendship is about. When you translate that to the digital world, it's almost, a, it's almost the same. It's just that people are, are so used to this idea of being able to copy face, paste a file instead of realizing that like a collection of art or NFTs is equally as representative of your identity as a human being and your self-expression as a selfie on Instagram. Like what you like is just a march a part of you as who you are. And so giving people the opportunity to like show the world what they like, everyone is a tastemaker, everyone is a curator. It's kind of the same thing we saw. It's what we're seeing in podcasts right now. Everyone wants their voice to be heard. Does that mean all voices should be heard? I don't know. Right. But that's what's happening in NFTs. Like everyone thinks they have great taste. They're willing to pay a price for, you know, showing their taste to the rest of the world. It makes a lot of sense. It's just that we're, we've trained ourselves that digital media is not scarce. So the same way the government is treating a dollar as not scarce today, it's it's not surprising that, you know, any artist can control their own supply if they want to. Like, that, that should be fine. Like, that should be cool. I should decide that, like, I spent eight hours on this piece, so maybe there are 10 of them. But maybe I spent four months on this other piece. Maybe there's only one of them because I spent so much time on this and I only want one person to have it. And so there's, there's, there's really infinite potential. We're really just seeing like the first inning of this. But I also want to mention, as excited as I am for the future, I don't know where we are in the cycle. I also don't even know if this is a cycle. Like this is a totally different world than what happened in 17, where you, you made a really good point. Everyone thought they were a good investor. Their intention was to make money. This time, there are people that want to speculate on this stuff. But there are also people that don't, that are like purely holders for, for the long haul. At least all the 33 people that bid on my auction, I can guarantee you that most of them are probably not looking to flip this shit. They want to hold this for a long time as a historic moment that hopefully, you know, change the music industry for the better. And that's fucking awesome. You know, like, that's why I'm holding my people and why I, I have 70 pieces of art that like I don't plan on flipping. Why I'm bidding on Rob Gronkowski's auction right now, because he's my one of my good friends. And he's like the first athlete to do his own independent thing on OpenSea. Like, I want to support that. Um, do I know what it's totally. worth in the future? No. But I also don't plan on selling it. I genuinely feel something in owning this stuff. Totally. Um, I can't explain the feeling. But I, I guess it's, you know, 
it's the same as owning real art, which I also, you know, am excited about and, and own a lot of real art. Backed is the digital wallet of the future, empowering you to manage all of your digital assets from a single place. Back puts the power in your hands to get your crypto loyalty and rewards points and gift cards together to choose how you want to use them. Treat your digital assets just like cash and convert, send, or spend them using Back. Get started today and get it together with Back. Sign up for the early access program at backbakkt.com. And I also want to take a moment to thank Kraken, the cryptocurrency exchange. For the last 10 years, Kraken has been known as one of the best platforms for trading crypto online. Whether it's your first trade or your 100th, Kraken has the tools to help you hit your financial goals in crypto. With Kraken, you can instantly buy and sell over 50 of the most popular cryptocurrencies or earn additional rewards through their industry-leading staking service. Payouts are twice a week, and you can earn up to 20% each year. Visit Kraken.com now to learn more. Well, I want to bring Ryan in because I don't want to embarrass him, but he's a massive fan. I think he's been to like 17 <laughs> or 100 or 200 of your performances. So yeah, thankfully, his, mics or his uh, camera's not working because he'd be redder than... A tomato right now. Ryan, I know you've been listening <laughs> in the background. He's he's the brains behind the scoop, by the way. He's the person who yeah. steps in and lets me know when I get a figure wrong, like how much your NFT sold for. Ryan, I know you've been listening with great curiosity. Do you want to step in for a second? Yeah, well, a couple of thoughts. One, I'm definitely a fan, but I guess not one of the biggest fans because I, I currently do not own one of the one of the 33 <laughs> NFTs. Um, yeah, I mean, you, you have a lot of big ideas that you've, you've already covered on, on this uh, segment. And I think one of them that really resonates is this direct access to your fans. The fact that it provides this channel that you get to operate with them. And we're seeing this play out. Like We're seeing ideas on this front on things like NBA Top Shot, where maybe some players will, you know, if, if you hold their, their biggest moments that on, on Top Shot, you know, they'll, they'll give you access to, say, tickets to a game. I think that's definitely like a way where you can embed utility into NFTs. Um, 100%. And all of that resonates re really strongly with me. One thing that you mentioned that I think would be interesting to talk about is this idea of the rev share component. I know it, it kind of makes it a security, but when you like think out five, 10 years and, and what this could all become, I definitely think that's, that's one of the bigger ideas. Oh yeah. To me, there are so many artists that I've encountered in my life that I love from day one. Uh, Elenium is one of them, and he's he's going to be doing his first NFT drops pretty soon, and I'm, I'm excited to be coaching him on it a little bit. But, you know, he opened for me back in the day. Now he's selling out three Red Rock stadiums. If I had the opportunity to put some money into Elenium, I would have. There's just yeah. no means of doing that. So thinking of every artist as a startup makes a lot of sense. Um, it didn't really historically, because once an artist was done with their career, they wouldn't necessarily sell any more records back before the streaming era. Now that artists are doing significant streaming revenue and there are like there's other ways to monetize musicians beyond their lifetime, right? Like Michael Jackson's catalog is incredibly valuable. So is um, I think David Bowie just sold like his catalog for 300 million or something, right? So there's a lot of value in owning the streaming rights to music or master recording rights specifically. Why not give fans the ability to participate in the upside of a musician's career? Like totally. it's, it makes so much sense, right? It's just that there's not a mechanism to do it because 
legacy music law makes no sense. Um, the way that a, a song is broken down and who, are, who the rights holders are makes no sense. Um, it's just like it was put into law a long time ago and doesn't apply at all to the modern world. So, you know, when you think about securities and money transmission laws, which are the two things you got to worry about when you think about giving fans equity in your music, if you can just come up with a compliant way of doing that, I think most fans would invest. They only have to invest $10. They don't, they don't have to invest a lot of money. They're basically the same money that they would buy your album for, but it's way better than the third of a cent that they, that, you know, that you get from a stream. So there's all this emotional value that isn't being captured from fans listening to music. That, that's in between what NFTs are selling for and the price that artists get paid to stream a song. The best example sure. I like to give of this is there have been a lot of fans who have walked down the aisle at their wedding to the acoustic version of one of my first bigger dance songs called How You Love Me. It, it's I get one message a month. Of a it's video. my favorite song. Dude, thanks. See, dude, so <laughs> hopefully that song has created some emotional value in your life. But is it really represented by like the 50 cents that have maybe come my way because of the emotion that you've gotten from that song? It's way more than that, right? Like people are willing, their willingness to pay for that emotion mm. is quite higher. They do it in live performances, but they haven't been able to do it in support of the music itself. So like That's I would, I would buy collectible editions of Radiohead's albums because Radiohead was a huge part of my life growing up. I spent a lot of money on that. So, you know, I have to look into myself look into my friends and see like we're all willing to support the arts and that means someone else is too in a huge way so being able to participate in the upside is even better this is like the collectible part is step one when owners can actually participate in the ip oh my god this thing is unstoppable right it's the legacy world isn't framed the right way to allow for that kind of innovation so i like my goal now that we've done this I'm obviously still excited about collectibles, but like I'm already on on to like okay, let's make this happen. You know, let's let's actually get yeah. fans IP rights in my next album. So so let's let's focus in on that for a second. Round out the conversation. We want to be respectful of your time. What's the roadmap? So what do you do next? How do we get this to be something that can be replicated by other artists, and then in the future, they have the tools to whether it's ref sharing, if we can unlock the legal question around that, or these yeah. things we're talking I'd about. Even, I'd even add on, like it, it seems like the reception obviously is going through the roof uh, within your circle and, and secondary circles. Um, but I'm just wondering like what other holdups or like snags there are from just like communicating like the value um, to so, these people that are interested. So here's the path forward in my mind. Number one, I need a fucking week to breathe. But yeah. this has been the no most life-changing two weeks. Yeah. This is the most life-changing two weeks of my life. Frank, like we met ages ago and I basically said this to everyone. Like if I knew you before all this happened, I want to talk to you. If I, if I haven't known you, it's kind of hard for me to, you know, I want to respect everyone who supported me. And Frank, like you and I have talked on DM a couple of times. We've like switched yeah. back and forth. Like I, I respect that and I appreciate that you, you know, at least knew what I was trying to do from, from back in the day. But I really do need to clear my head. I think like this all happened way too fast and I'm still trying to understand it. Um, but I think that the message is clear from the community, which is like something needs to change and everyone knows music is inefficient. That's like the big statement that was made. So I need to take a second to, to kind of take a step back, think about what the next step is. But in my own mind, the way I think about it today, I want to create the safe agreement for musicians, mm -hmm. safe equivalent for a startup for musicians, right? The safe enables a startup to raise capital without, it's a standard, 
that's now accepted by the industry that doesn't require high legal costs to create investment opportunities for funds without like, you know, having to pay lawyers a shit ton of money to put paperwork together. That's the problem for musicians is if, if I wanted to like do this, it costs a lot of money in legal to get to make, get this done. So my vision is creating the safe in a digital way to enable fans to invest in music. And I am working with somebody on it. I'm working with, with uh, Republic. I don't know if you've heard of Republic.co. Yeah. Their vision is like letting people invest in everything. They facilitated offerings in, you know, public investments in private companies like SpaceX and Robinhood. And the founder has mm -hmm. been a friend of mine since the beginning of my crypto journey. And, you know, they're a great partner to think about this kind of stuff with. That's where I see this going, like giving any artist the ability to raise capital from their fans in a compliant way that is also tokenized. I actually don't think we're that far from it. I, if you asked me like a month ago, I would have said we're like still a year away. But with the amount of interest that's, that's you know, gravitating towards this space, people are beginning to realize that they've, like artists are beginning to realize that they've been robbed for years. Yeah. So they're seeing it with this big number, right? They're like, well, if this kid could do it, and I'm not the biggest artist in the world, let's be honest, why can't I? And you can, and you can like that. I want that. That's the big question. It's like, so, and then we'll, we'll close in on that, but you know, I think you're great. Um, Ryan thinks you're the biggest artist, but there are way bigger artists out there. And what, what do they do when they see something like this? Are they ripping up their, their, their contracts if they can to get out of it and then, you know, go out and instead of making 11 million, they're making, you know, if it's, you know, who are the, who, who are the kids listening to today? They go out there and make a hundred million or 200 million. The most money generated by an electronic artist, uh, I think, is around 17 million from Spotify. Um, but that's like before every commission is taken out. That's like gross. So we've kind of probably broken that um, in terms of what comes back to me personally, or at least we might after tomorrow, which is my next drop, which is we had planned both of these in December. And like I had no idea that I would have planned them a little bit farther apart if I could have in advance. But it's all kind of happening really quickly. Do I think any anyone can issue NFTs meaningfully? No. But like the same way not everyone can make music meaningfully, the same way not everyone can run a podcast meaningfully, right? But there are those people out there who have incredible artistic vision and want to bridge these worlds, like one of whom I want to just shout him out, Tycho, an incredible artist that I've been listening to since high school, has always been a technologist. He's always been a visual artist. And the second he saw this, he was like, I need to participate in this. And I think his drop is going to be incredible because he's a natural audio visual artist all in one package. Like I have to team up with a visual artist because I'm not a visual artist. Um, mm. I have visual taste. But what we're going to see is we're going to see like real true artists doing awesome shit that bridges technology and music. We're also going to see pop stars try some shit and that might not work out. And that's okay. You know, I, I think we already saw it technically. You know, I don't know if it was a failure, but it certainly wasn't as like meaningful as um, Grimes who kind of did something quite cool and other people maybe aren't as maybe a little bit bigger than Grimes, so to speak, but like couldn't get, you know, pull the same kind of reaction. So, so yeah, it's going to be really interesting next few months. Um, I've tried to like cut off the music business a bit and stay focused on the blockchain community because I couldn't be here without the blockchain community. The music business wasn't really giving me too much of the time of day for the past 10 years anyway. So I'm, I'm quite excited to see where the community takes this. And I want to side with independent artists. I, you know, disclosure, last thing I'll mention Disclosure hit me up about this uh, guy from Disclosure hit me up about this months ago. He was like, Justin, I really think you have something here. I'm about to get out of my record deal. I've been making beats on Twitch for my fan base all summer. I'd love to like 
make beats on Twitch and tokenize them. I'm like, dude, that's brilliant. Like you're making it live in front of your fans and then you give them access to owning it. That's brilliant. He does it. And on his first one on Zora, 45 ETH. He's no background in blockchain space. He just gets it. He understands like the creative spider web that exists in how you can integrate this stuff. And that's so awesome. Like I'm so happy for him because he did, he approached it without the idea of money in mind. He was just like, I want to take advantage of this technology to do something cool. And I think that's where we're going to see the most success in the future. One thing I want to circle on real fast though, Frank. Um, so we talked about disrupting record labels and just even people on, on Instagram. Um, you've mentioned Spotify a few times. Like not many people understand really the, the unit economics behind that model uh, for artists. Do you foresee, like obviously play this out 12 months, like they have to find a way to get involved with this, right? Like so Spotify isn't really the bad guy. The, the kind of common narrative is that Spotify is the bad guy. When in reality, Spotify has paid me more than I ever made before it, it existed. It's still not the most, it's still not like the total amount that I think I should be getting paid, but it's definitely better before a world without Spotify where I was making like maybe $10,000. And because I own my masters, it's closer to, you know, 400, 500,000 a year now, um, which we've donated to charity historically. And I have expenses, of course, but like I had no idea that owning your own rights could actually generate money at all until yeah. three or four years ago. So the real disservice is the people that are taking that revenue from Spotify and then cutting it up even more and then giving the artist what's left. Those are the people that like really need to be paying attention and are probably going to get screwed. Um, Spotify, though, as you said, will have to reckon with this. And I think there are great projects like Audius that I've been advising for three years who are now thinking about like how do we become the new version of that? And whether they succeed or not, I think there's an obvious you know, desire for fans to collect their favorite songs in a more meaningful way than just like listening to them passively. And yeah, I mean, we'll see. I have no idea how long it will take to change, but I think what just happened is indicative that like change is coming. So however quickly it happens, oh, yeah. I support it. I mean, listen, this is slowly becoming the NFT podcast. So <laughs> we'll have you back on in a, in a month after you get your rest and you, you know, your developments with Republic move a bit forward to get the update. I'm kind of learning along the way with the audience. This is a more trading finance focused show. And I've never gotten as many phone calls, text messages, emails uh, saying, whoa, like, I'm so glad you did this because, you know, you never really know, you know, what to trust out there in terms of what's going on. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I think we need to focus as the blockchain crypto community on these things that are finance adjacent because this is what adds value at the end of the day to the to the underpinning technology. So, Justin, so great to see you. Appreciate your time. We'll do it again soon. And just final final message to everyone listening. Buy the stuff because it makes you feel things. Don't buy it because you think it's going to go 3x. And don't buy my shit because you think it's going to go 3x. I have no idea if it will. Um, <laughs> but buy it if you like it. I think that's that's my number one message that I'm trying to you know put out there. I know I'm biased, but this was easily my favorite episode of The Scoop, I think. Oh, yeah. Thank you guys so much. We'll have to do it again.